You're listening to A Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, So many of you have heard the news that uh, music television, also known as MTV, which is this startup channel on your cable box, has given me a television program uh, that will begin in the fall, uh, which is basically going to be more of what I already do uh, and do so middlingly well, uh, Q&A. They're going to come with me in my college speaking tours. We're going to film them. We're going to make TV shows out of them. It's not the show I pitched to MTV. Uh, unfortunately, that one technically wasn't realizable. What I wanted to do was a show where I would get into a time machine and go back in time uh, when the team moms were just teens and sexually active and scream, get an abortion at them at the top of my lungs and then jump back in my time machine and go back to the future. But we couldn't pull that off because the technology is not there. So I can't, I can't prevent teen mom from happening. Uh, so that's the show. It's going to be Savage Love Q&A. They're calling it Savage You. They rejected my title for the show, uh, which was Dan Savage's Alaska. They passed on that title, so it's Savage You. And uh, the reaction to me getting my own television program has been generally positive. It hasn't been received with unalloyed joy in all quarters of the news. Maggie Gallagher, who is the head of the National Organization for Marriage, also known as NOM, also known as an officially designated hate organization, isn't pleased. And uh, she wrote a blog post uh, that begins, renowned sex columnist Dan Savage, who is an openly gay man, will be taking his popular sex and relationship advice column to MTV in a show appropriately called Savage You where he intends to educate your college students about the importance of honesty over just about anything else, including fidelity. Savage, who for all his experience, little dig at gay men and how sexually overactive we are there, Maggie. I caught that. Savage, who for all his experience, does not know what women are like. blah de blah blah She doesn't think I should be giving advice to women because I don't fuck them anymore. Which is hilarious because... Maggie Gallagher bases her opposition to same-sex marriage in part on her Catholicism, which is a religion built around guys who don't have sex with women telling women what to do. You know, until Maggie Gallagher tells the Pope to shut the fuck up and not offer advice to women about birth control, about oral sex, about abortion, about condoms, Maggie Gallagher really is in no position to tell me to shut the fuck up. And unlike the Pope, I only give advice to women who ask. All of my advice for women is solicited. The Pope is always telling women who aren't Catholic or who are Catholic but think the Pope should shut the fuck up what to do. He's always offering them unsolicited advice. I am solicited. Anyway, uh, Maggie has a problem with my show. You might too. Uh, it's coming up soon um, on MTV. It's going to eat my fall. I'll be dashing around the country. I'm very excited about it. Uh, Maggie Gallagher, the National Organization for Women, is not. I think we'll have to agree to disagree about that, Mags. And now on to your calls. Hi, Dan. I have a question. Not so much um, wanting to get advice, just um, a curiosity thing. I was out recently in San Francisco with some friends, and we ended up going out in the Castro. And we were at a really fun bar and met 
this really entertaining uh, gay guy that we proceeded to hang out with for the rest of the night. And at the end of the night, I don't really remember this, we apparently left the bar and we're standing outside. And according to my friends, he and I started making out. Um, and I guess they were, my friends are standing with some other people who said, made a comment like, oh, sure, come to the pastor and make out with a gay guy. Um, also, according to my friends, then I guess his friend or boyfriend came up who was also equally um, gay. I mean, like, this guy was just, the way he dressed, the way he talked, like, I didn't question the fact that I thought he was gay at all. Um, but apparently, somehow I ended up making out with both of them. Um, is that a thing? Like, when, I mean, when a gay guy only want to make out with another guy, I don't usually initiate things like that. I'm pretty timid, even when I'm drunk. Um, but apparently lasted for a while. I just, just a curiosity thing. Um, not really typical me. Um, I also didn't think typical gay guy thing to do. Setting aside for a moment the possibility that these guys are bi guys and not gay guys. Um, I'm not going to talk about whether that thing that you described is a thing, but I'm going to talk about something else, another thing that is a thing. Have you heard of gay chicken? It is a game that straight boys play where they make out with each other. They will kiss. And it's like playing chicken, like standing on the train tracks as the train comes. Uh, and the loser is the first person to jump out of the way. And in gay chicken, the loser is the first person who bails because, you know, He's making out with a dude and he's straight and that's crazy and gross. And I wish Gay Chicken existed as a game when I was in high school because I would totally revisit the whole Bobby Cursed situation. I would challenge him to a gay of Gay Chicken instead of just admiring him from afar all through uh, grade school and high school. Anyway, maybe uh, straight chicken. Maybe straight chicken happened. Maybe somebody has invented – the game straight chicken to complement the game gay chicken. And so maybe these guys were making out with you, not because they were attracted to you or because they were bi, but because they were seeing how long they could kiss a girl before they had to bail. And that could be the thing. That could be a thing uh, that happened that night, that or their bi. But generally, as a rule, gay guys don't make out with straight girls at bars when they're drunk, unless they're being goofy or weird or funny, or they aren't actually gay guys. Here's another thing. If when you're out in the Castro, you're so drunk that you can't remember if you made out with any guys or how many guys you made out with or whether those guys were gay or straight, you were a little too drunk that night in the Castro and you might want to uh, moderate your alcohol consumption even when you are a girl and in what may feel like a safer place to get blackout drunk like a gay bar because you never know who's there or what they're up to or about or what games they're playing. Hey, Dan. Um, I just wanted to call. I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts, and I haven't heard anything regarding my issue. Um, anyway, I'm in, a S I'm in an S&M-based DS relationship with a lovely woman. I identify her as my sub, and um, we share that, but we also have an open relationship where I'm allowed to play with other people, and she's allowed to play with other people, but we share, still share the same dynamic. Um, anyway, that being said, lately I've been getting a lot more, um, play opportunities than she has. And, um, it's not that I've been cutting into our, my time with her as much as just, uh, I've been, I've been being 
being propositioned all the time. And so I never cancel her, her first, but I'm always being, uh, as to whether or not I want to do things with these other people and me being a 23 year old male, I can't really deny it. So as long as she knows about, it, I feel that it's okay with that. How do I, how do I go about, uh, getting over that, you know, that I, I know deep down I'm interested in monogamy, but I'm also enjoying this brand new dynamic that, uh, that I can have somebody that I can rely on for, you know, support and for, you know, all these other things. And then, but it, it also something in my brain clicks where it's just like, wait a minute, I have a, you know, I technically have a, a DS girlfriend and here I am going whatever. And I know she's cool with it, but I don't know how to, to make peace with the fact that, you know, this is a completely new dynamic to me and, like, where's the line where I'm no longer being a misogynistic bastard about it and um, actually just having fun and, and enjoying the, the agreement that me and her came to? I'm wondering when you find time to, you know, spank your sub if you're always standing there wringing your hands. Uh, listen, this is kind of not a problem. Uh, you know, two people who are in an open relationship and, you know, setting the whole BDSM dom sub dynamic aside, you're two people, uh, in an open relationship that you've defined the, the, the sort of shape and tenor of, and there's some, you know, submissive play in it, but you're still equals and you've hashed out this agreement that allows you to play with others when you have the opportunity, allows her to play with others when she has the opportunity. And you've discovered as so many people in open relationships discover is those opportunities don't present themselves at the same clip for both partners. So you're getting a little more play now than she is. And instead of worrying about that and what that means and blah, 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 all you do is project yourself into the future and imagine a time when the opportunities for you dry up a little bit, when you're getting a little less play or fewer offers are rolling in and her dance card begins to fill up or spank card begins to fill up. Is that okay with you? I would hope it would be okay with you. This current situation is fine with her and she's being gracious and non-possessive and operating in the spirit of openness. And you should think about that future where you know her dance card is full and yours is empty. Will you be equally gracious and understanding and say at a girl and send her on her way? Then there's no problem here that everything is fine. Take her at her word. Take yes for an answer. Take yes. Fuck other people for an answer. And in the future, you will give that same answer to her if she has any self-consciousness about uh, the situation when the tables are turned. And I promise you the tables will turn. Hi, Dan. I am a 19-year-old lesbian who lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I've dated femme girls the ever since I have been out of the closet. Um, I'm pretty dykey. You know, I dress in boys' clothes, have short hair. I usually play the boyish role in any of my relationships, you know, the whole deal. But as I have matured and grown, I realized that I kind of am more attracted to the more dykey of the lesbians. And I'm kind of having trouble. I, it feels like uh, since I have dressed a certain way and look a certain way, I have to go for the femme girls and... I'm kind of feeling alone in a pretty big city with a pretty good gay population. Um, I just didn't know if there were other dykes who are looking for other dykes and if there are ways to network and communicate if, you know, I just don't, I'm, I feel lost. 
right, there's a few things at play here. You're a dikey dyke. Uh, you're attracted to dikey dykes. Uh, you live in a small town, and you're only 19. Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma is a population of about a half a million. You might want to cover big a city you think that is. You might want to drift toward a slightly larger city. Uh, gays and lesbians, very tiny percentage of the population. The bigger the city you live in, the more of us there are, the more dykes you get to choose from uh, to date. Also, you're only 19. So unlucky in love at 19 is not a bug. It's a feature. It's kind of what you're supposed to be going through and doing as you sift through your taste, as you've already learned that you know you dated femme girls and you realize that as a butch girl, you're actually one of those butch girls is into other butch girls and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you learn something about yourself that you haven't landed the butch girl of your dreams yet in a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma at age 19. Not a big surprise and not anything you should be particularly stressed out about. I would suggest moving to a bigger city if only to up your odds by uh, there being more butches and lesbians on the ground in a bigger city. Uh, more odds that you'll meet somebody that A, you're attracted to, B, is also attracted to you in return and C, you're compatible with emotionally and D, compatible with sexually. That said, also, girls your age, lesbians your age, uh, there are a lot of butch dykes out there and femme girls out there who are attracted to butch girls. But uh, at 19, 18, 20, they're still struggling with a lot of internalized homophobia and a lot of negative messages they got from the culture about their own sexuality. And a lot of young dykes will try to – and young fags will try to compensate or – overcompensate for the shit that was thrown at them by not dating the kinds of queers that they were told were bad queers. Uh, you'll see this in you know young gay guys who are just very dramatically uh, repulsed by uh, gay guys who have any hint of the feminine about them. And you'll see it often in young dykes who are, you know, oh, I'm a lesbian, but I'm not, a, you know, I'm not attracted to tomboys and girls who look like they want to be men. And what they're responding to really isn't their own desires or even the attitudes of the people who are around them now, but the shit that was thrown at them when they were 12 and 13 and 14 years old about you know what was unacceptable about gays and lesbians. What was unacceptable about gay men was that they were all like screaming sissy, faggot, queer, femi boys and so they you know, dramatically will reject those boys in a way to try to – you know, win the affections of the homophobes who pounded that into their heads in their first place who aren't even in their lives anymore. And the same dynamic often plays out for young dykes. So there may be girls out there your age right now who are actually, you know, if they thought about it for a minute or could get in touch with their own desires, into girls like you, into butches, uh, you know, butches who are into butches. But right now they're chasing after the femme girls because that's what they think they're supposed to want or that's somehow – exonerates them a bit or makes them a little less like the awful queers they heard so much about in middle school. So give it time. Relax. You'll meet the butches who are into butches, girls who are into girls like you. Uh, as they relax and calm down and get more in touch with what they're actually into. And again, uh, your odds of meeting those girls, finding more of them, more of them to choose from, better in a bigger town. Hi, Dan. I've got a question about condom etiquette. So last year, I started dating this guy in my city. We had the whole exclusivity talk and got tested and then decided to ditch the condom. Um, that was all great for a while. Then he ended up moving to another country, and so we broke up. Um, now it looks like he's going to be back in town to visit some family, and I think we'd both 
really like to hook up. But of course, we've, you know, both been fooling around with and sleeping with other people um, in the months since we broke up. So unprotected sex probably isn't a great idea. Um, still, we're only going to see each other once or twice while he's visiting. I don't want to totally kill the mood by dwelling on all the other people we've both been sleeping with in the meantime. Um, so what's your advice? Uh, what's the best way to bring up the fact that we need to start using condoms again um, without going into too much detail about what we've both been up to? Another hand wringer with what's not really a problem. All You don't have to go into detail. All you have to say is, our old agreement is non-operative. We were not using condoms before because we were exclusive and we had time to really hash things out. Uh, and, and it felt safe to not use condoms. But, you know, in the interim, in the meantime, we're both like seeing other people now. So we should go back to condoms, period. The end of dis- end of conversation. If he wants to argue with you about it, then you shouldn't fuck him, period, the end. I guarantee you that if you present it to him like that, he's not going to want to argue with you about it. If you present it to him like any argument is going to keep your dick out of my pussy, condom or no condom, he'll put the fucking condom on. To just present it as a fuck accompli, this must be done if you want to fuck me and he will do it and you don't have to justify it or explain it. You don't have to justify or explain requests for safety. You don't have to justify to someone, I would like to use condoms. Even if we weren't using condoms before, I'd like to use condoms now for my own sense of personal safety and security because the circumstances are a little different now. The end. You know, this is where people get into trouble uh, with sexually transmitted infections and unplanned pregnancies is this inhibition, this self-consciousness around negotiating terms with a new partner or renegotiating terms with an old partner that you're resuming uh, sexual activity with. Uh, you just have to toss it out there and let the, the chips fall where they may. Usually people are inhibited because they're afraid that if they make a demand or they change their demands that that person that they're sexually into and sexually attracted to may walk. When you make reasonable demands about safety that are as much for your own protection as your partner's protection and your partner walks, good fucking riddance. That's nothing that you should be overly concerned about because they've demonstrated by walking that they were a safety risk and they weren't worth it. They weren't worth the investment of time, emotional energy, intimacy, or risk. So don't fuck them if they walk. And you can't fuck them if they walk because they walked. So you win either way. They stay and they do what you asked and you fuck them and you win or – They balk and they walk and you don't get to fuck them and you win because they didn't deserve the fuck that you were going to fuck them with. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 37-year-old gay woman. I live in California. My cousin, who is 26, uh, is a teacher in New York City, the Bronx, specifically. Um, Anyway, one of her students came to her. She's 13 and she wants to come up to her homophobic mother. Um, Apparently, she's very homophobic, uh, just says being gay is disgusting, unnatural, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's no support group at their school, and the social worker there is super busy with mandated counseling. Um, so at age 13, what sort of advice would you have for this kid? My inclination would be to say, you know, please don't come out right now. I mean, she's obviously completely dependent on her family. Um, I directed her to the Trevor Project, 
and then also to your Get Better project. Um, so just wondering if you have any advice. No, no need to call me back, um, but I think it would carry some clout coming from you uh, to give that sort of advice to someone that age. Thanks a lot. Bye. It's wildly irresponsible of lesbian and gay adults to just willy-nilly without any regard for the particular circumstances of a particular gay teenager to tell those gay kids just to come out. Uh, coming out indeed is necessary and important and we all have to do it. We all should do it. You really can't live uh, a life as a lesbian or gay or bi or trans person with any sense of self or integrity or you know any really reward without being out. But not all kids can be out. Uh, kids really gay, lesbian, bi, trans – Middle schoolers, high schoolers, they have to look around. They have to look at their parents, who their parents are, and decide whether they can risk it. 40% of homeless teenagers are LGBT kids who were kicked out or thrown out of the house after they came out or were outed to their families. Uh, homelessness for young LGBT folks is a huge risk. A lot of those kids wind up engaged in survival prostitution and a lot of them don't survive that stage of their lives and that can also do a lot of damage to a person emotionally if they're engaged in prostitution not because they feel they have a capacity to engage in that kind of work without being damaged but because they feel they have no choice so don't as the adults uh, near or around this girl just advise her to come out in the hopes that her family will go flag on her ass and turn into super mom and super dad and be there for her. If they've communicated to her that they are crazy homophobic, the odds that they will react crazy and negatively when she comes out are really high. I would advise a teenager in her circumstance to lay low, to bide her time, to constantly reassess where she thinks her parents are at on the issue, but to come out to them from a position of strength if she feels she must come out to them now, if she can't wait or if she's about to be outed or if they suspect and they're badgering her, she needs a backup plan. She needs a place she can go, a relative she can stay with or friends she can flee to. She needs a lawyer perhaps to get herself emancipated from her parents and her family and declared legally an adult. It's a tremendously risky situation that she's in to be 15, face three, two and a half, three more years of being a minor, being someone else's child and those those people, particularly if they're homophobes, having absolute control over her life and her destiny. So tread carefully, be careful, don't push her to come out, acquaint her with the risks and a lot of people who've made uh, videos of the It Gets Better Project talk about those risks and be there for her. You know, Oftentimes what a 15-year-old queer who has a family that she can't come out to needs are some sympathetic adults around her who can listen – Assure her, reassure her that it'll get better for her too uh, and that her family, like so many other uh, gay and lesbian adults, uh, our families, her family can come around. That even if they react negatively now or when she comes out at 18, when she's safe, they too can come around. Good luck to you. Good luck to your friend, the teacher. And you know how lucky for this girl that she has – a teacher, if no one else, that she can go to and confide in and get the support that she needs right now. Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old uh, straight female in a city in the Midwest, and I am kind of have a dilemma. 
Um, I've been in this on-again, off-again relationship with someone who I love for, like, going on four years now. And when we break up, I usually see somebody else. Um, And in the most recent breakup, I've kind of gotten into some, like, I don't know, I guess, kinkier sex than I have ever before. So it's kind of, um, it's looking like I might be seeing my ex again soon and, I don't know, potentially maybe getting back together. But I'm just curious. Normally we don't talk about, like, if we saw other people while we were not together. But I feel like if we do have sex and get back together, obviously, then I'm going to want to say, like, hey, uh, you're going to need to, like, maybe fake me and joke me a little bit. So I'm just wondering, like, is that a conversation that I would want to have beforehand or wait till it's in the moment? Because I don't really want to make him upset or, like, start, I don't want to make him think, like, I don't know about me with another guy because I know that will hurt his feelings and all that. Presumably, during your separation or, you know, while the relationship was off, he had experiences with other people, you had experiences with other people. You should be able to acknowledge that. I often warn women away from men who can't handle the truth, who can't who react badly to the to the news or the fact or the realization or the awareness or the acknowledgement that their girlfriends or their wives have had sex with other dudes before them. Um, so I would challenge him on that and I would not pander to that kind of insecurity. You've not been with just him and that's just a fact. But if you want to work around this, it's a pretty simple workaround. Instead of saying, oh, I want you to do X and Y because I got with this guy while we were off who did X and Y and I found that I really loved X and Y and so I want you to be as much fun in the sack as he was. He might not react so well to that. Even if he's okay with you know the knowledge, the awareness that you've been with other people, that might tweak his insecurities. So instead of presenting this as, you know, this other guy awakened this in me and here it is, all you have to do is say, there's these things that I enjoy sexually, I've grown sexually, um, that I know that would be really fun and you'd be really good at it, I'd really like to do them with you. So instead of making it about some other guy instilled this in you or endowed you with these interests, that this is coming from you, from inside of you. And you want to do this, these things that you enjoy with him. And they would be fun and rewarding uh, for you, with him, for him, with you, la, 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 la. So just make it come from inside. And if he says, oh, did you do this with your last boyfriend? Say, no, I've always wanted to do this. I've always been into these things. And now I'm just a little bit more ready and willing to just be upfront about my desires. And just don't let him pry into exactly what inspired you at this particular time in your life. Uh, to toss that out there. That said, you mentioned spanking. Yay, spanking. Asses getting slapped all for it. Uh, you mentioned choking. Choking is really dangerous. Jay Wiseman, who wrote uh, a book called uh, S&M 101 that a lot of people reference, uh, had this to say in, in the book. Other edge play activities such as suspension bondage, electricity play, cutting, piercing, branding, enemas, water sports, and scat – can and have been taught with reasonable safety, but not breath control play. Indeed, it seems that the more somebody knows about how a human body works, the more likely they are to caution people about how dangerous 
breath control, which can include choking, is and about how little can be done to reduce the degree of risk. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who aren't actually people out there. They are uh, ashes and urns because they were engaged in breath control play. They were doing choking or asphyxiation and it went wrong or they were doing it most foolishly of all alone and it went disastrously wrong. Uh, breath control is too dangerous for me to sign off on and it is certainly too dangerous for you to ask somebody who has never done it before and may not have a feel for it just to go for it. Just go ahead and choke me. That's a really bad idea. If you must, if it really turns you on to have your air supply fucked with, I would recommend or not recommend, I would toss this out there without recommending it. You can get a gas mask. Somebody can put their hand, the palm of their hand over the air intake thing and all you have to do is shake your head and the palm of their hand slips and you can get air. You can also just have someone put their hand over your mouth and pinch your nose closed until you begin to shake it off a little bit. But I, but I would prefer that listeners uh, to my program, to the Savage Lovecast, not engage in breath control play, not engage in oxygen deprivation, sex games because the consequences from brain damage to cardiac arrest to death are just too extreme. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I am on the verge of a divorce, unfortunately. I am 26, female, kinky. I've been married only five months, and surprise, I am no longer sexually attracted to my husband. Just saying the word husband sounds old and frumpy to me, and I don't know, maybe there's a, a long-standing problem there, but there are additional problems with my husband besides the sex, like Working out is extremely important to me, and he rarely does it, even though I repeatedly tell him I want him to. I'm kinky, and he isn't, and he doesn't get it, you know, and I, I think it's something that you're born with, and I can tell that he just thinks all the props and costumes and things are stupid, and he's just waiting for penis and vagina, which kind of insults me. I also don't like the way he gets when he's drunk, because he's obnoxious. He's not abusive or anything, and he's just annoying. You know, I love him, definitely, but it's, I feel like it's companionate love and not passionate love. But here's the problem. I know that the lust inevitably dies in any relationship, and there's no longer that newness factor that, that and things become comfortable. But my question is, how quickly does that normally happen? I know that it can't be the same for everybody, but, you know, how the fuck do you tease out whether the problem is with you and your partner versus hormones? in the passage of time. I've had a number of three-year relationships, and it seems like every single time that I hit the three-year mark, I get bored and restless and I cheat. So I'm worried that this is a problem with me, that this pattern is with me, and I'm doomed to repeat it forever by being a succubus and fucking the shit out of someone for three years and then getting bored and kicking them out, even if they're perfect for me in the long term. I just, I can't see past the short-term problems, you know? So... I really don't know what to do here, and I, I'm at a loss, so I would really appreciate your, your insight. I want to jump back to Maggie Gallagher for a second before I talk about your question. You know, her problem and a lot of people's problems with my advice is that I sometimes advise people uh, to not make monogamous commitments that they can't keep or renegotiate monogamous commitments that they foolishly made that they can't keep uh, and that I don't emphasize the importance of fidelity. Maggie's primary objection in her post was that I never recommend, quote, the possibility of taming one's sexual desire for the sake of another 
or of a vow. That is not in the savage moral imagination, says Maggie Gallagher. <clears throat> it actually is in my moral imagination, uh, taming your sexual desires. I've always said, you know, settling down requires settling for, and sometimes what you settle for is less than you would like sexually. Also, uh, you know, one of my things I hammer away at is the price of admission, that there are prices of admission to be paid to be in a relationship with anybody. And you have to determine if this particular price of admission is a price you're willing to pay. And if it is, if that person's worth it, you pay it and shut the fuck up. In some instances, you know, there are people who write me who are into anal sex. Their partners aren't. They love their partners. They're in closed relationships uh, that they value. And they want to know what to do. And I'm like, well, obviously, being with this person, the price of admission is no anal for you. You must tame your sexual desire, per Maggie Gallagher. Uh, and is that person worth it? And if they are, all right. But I don't believe in pushing monogamy, fidelity, traditional expectations around sexuality on people who are quite clearly incapable of being monogamous. Uh, people who are going to you know, tumble out of the fidelity car and land with a splat on the sidewalk like you. Why are you married? Why did you make a monogamous commitment? You're incapable of it. You you know yourself. You know your pattern that you're with somebody for a, you know six months, a few years. Then you get bored. Then you need somebody else. Then you need to move on. You've attempted to fit yourself into a mold that you're not going to fit into. The you know the marriage monogamy one guy mold. You've poured yourself into that, and you're already trying to break out of it because. It's not for you. Why pour yourself into that? And I get attacked by the likes of Maggie Gallagher when I tell people like you, don't get married. Don't make a monogamous commitment. Or if you are going to get married, have an open marriage. Have a marriage where you can have stability, a partnership, companionship, a companionate marriage, and also the variety and sexual adventure that you clearly need to be happy. Right now, your husband represents for you in your Imagination, the death of possibility, the death of adventure, the death of you know being with somebody who goes to the gym. Uh, he's not doesn't share your kinks. So when you look at him, you just see all your unmet needs, and it's hard to see the needs that he does meet because you're so focused on what you're not getting and will never get from him. So why'd you marry him exactly? I'm not exactly sure why you would marry him then. And I guess I'm a bad guy for telling you you shouldn't have married him or telling you that you shouldn't marry anyone without negotiating in advance a degree of openness that will allow you to be committed to somebody and also get past the six-month to three-year boredom thing that makes you slam your hand down on the self-destruct button in every relationship that you're in. And that makes me the bad guy for the likes of Maggie Gallagher. And actually, you know, Maggie, if you're listening, I believe you are a listener, wouldn't it be better for marriage if this woman wasn't married? Wouldn't it be better for the divorce rate if this woman wasn't going to get married and divorce and get married and divorce, get married and divorce? Because on the one hand, she wants to, you know, be the sort of person or have the sort of relationship that the culture tells her is virtuous and that she should have and should want. On the other hand, She's going to get bored every three years and dump the motherfucker and go off in search of adventure and possibility. It would be better for her not to marry and just have you know a string of relationships that give her pleasure or to marry and be in a non-monogamous relationship, to marry without fidelity, to marry without a monogamous commitment because that's the kind of marriage that would probably last for this caller. If she had a marriage without monogamy, 
She had a marriage that allowed for some variety. She could stay in that marriage. Right now she has a marriage that means no variety, no adventure, and she's not going to be able to stay in it. So I actually have a very pro-marriage anti-fidelity under certain circumstances for certain people agenda. And I would like some credit for that agenda of mine. Maggie? Hi, Dan. My name is Sky. I'm from Oregon. I'm calling um, to seek your perspective on uh, responsibility in relationships. I am almost 22, and I was initiated into the world of polyamory uh, almost a year ago. Um, I became lovers with one of my best friends who's about 13 years older than me. He, at the time, was just um, transitioning out of a six-year partnership, and I uh, also fell in love with his partner, and so we all were sort of lovers together um, for a time. And then once she moved away, he and I kind of like transitioned out of being lovers, but we're always really intimate and snuggled and like all this stuff. We lived together in a community situation with other people, and I found myself once I the support of the partner was gone, I was feeling really unsupported and more triggered by jealousy and all these things. And he took other lovers and he wasn't my lover anymore. And so my question to you is what is your perspective on um, his responsibility to me at this point? Um, we still live together. And so like, and I'm finding myself like emotional support from him and coaching in the world of polyamory and really like I need him to be my ally and, um, supportive of me when I'm feeling like crazy and emotional when I witness him with other people and when he's not with me. And so does he have any responsibility to me as somebody that he initiated into the world of polyamory and sort of took as a lover for a short time and then kind of dropped? And so, yeah, or does he owe me nothing? And do I just need to like get over it and um, not feel jealous or feel just and then move out? So he initiated you into the world of polyamory. He jumped out from behind the shrubbery and sank his polyamorous fangs into your throat and you became a polyamorous vampire. And now he has to take a certain responsibility for making sure you are not exposed to the sunlight. Look, you had a relationship with the guy, uh, an open relationship, and you were fucking other people or could and he was fucking other people and could and things didn't work out for the two of you and you're not in a relationship anymore and his responsibility to you at that point kind of ends you know it's nice if when our we break up with somebody or they break up with us and they want to touch base or they feel like they need a little care and tlc afterwards to provide that but that is extra credit that is above and beyond the call and not everybody is capable of doing that not everybody should do that and in some instances it's not even the loving thing to do that because there are people who need to get over you and they want to process everything endlessly because they don't want to let go and the most loving thing you could do sometimes is to cut those people off because they need to get the fuck over you and get away and heal and fuck some other people so no he doesn't have a responsibility to you uh you have a responsibility to take responsibility for the choices that you've made as an adult. You know, if he, if this was a monogamous relationship, you couldn't say that he had initiated you into opposite sex, heterosexual monogamy. And therefore for the rest of his life and your life, he has to take responsibility for that and hold your hand as you process and 
frat and wring your hands over every twist and turn in your monogamous heterosexual lifestyle that he dragged you off into. You made a choice to bang somebody in a poly situation. Uh, you guys aren't fucking anymore. He doesn't have to be your emotional tampon for the rest of your life because you made a choice to become involved with him. Go lean on your friends for support. Go talk it out. You have other communities, uh, other folks that you can turn to. He doesn't want to be that person. It could be that he owes you some things emotionally or owes you some consideration, but he's not going to provide it for you because I told you that he owes you that. So even if he's being an asshole, me saying, oh, he's being an asshole and he really should be there to dry your seduced into polyamory tears for you, it's not going to change anything. Stand on your own two fucking feet, take some responsibility, move the fuck on. Uh, hey, Dan, my name is Pat. I'm uh, from Portland, Oregon, and I was calling back about uh, the woman in a couple uh, podcasts ago whose mother had become ill with uh, lung cancer. Uh, my dad passed away in December and was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in October, and I was in the same situation. I'd been with my girlfriend for about nine months when we found out, and we had just moved in together. Um, I just wanted to let her know, for me, uh, I put my relationship completely on the back burner and diverted all my attention to my father. Um, it was the best decision I made at the time. And also to remind her that she's only been with her girlfriend for six months, and she does not know how long or if this woman will even be in her lifetime, in her life in the future. And that I'm not saying her mom is going to pass, but if she does, um, the regret of not spending more time with her mother and spending time with this woman who may not even be in her life in the future um, would just be horrible. So I would recommend her to spend as much time with her mother as she can and put the relationship on the back burner. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 233. We're in response to a man missing his wife's crazy sexual antics. You suggested couples counseling, but hedged that a lot of therapists are sex negative. I know that that's unfortunately the case, but it's not universal. There are sex therapists and sex positive couples counselors. A client can and should, when calling up a potential therapist for the first time, say, we're looking for a sex-positive counselor, someone who's comfortable talking about unconventional sex practices and desires. Can you fulfill that? And if not, keep looking. If one counselor doesn't work out, that doesn't mean you should throw in the towel immediately. Client-therapist relationships are like any other relationships. Sometimes they're a good fit, and sometimes they're not. Therapists are humans with biases and assumptions just like everyone else. Probably try to be aware of those biases and master them. At least the good therapists do. Therapists are not one-size-fits-all, and it's worth it to find one with whom you click, who's sex-positive, and who will address your difficulties with respect and empathy. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I'm just calling in with a comment to episode number 229. You had a woman call into the podcast who was having a hard time picking herself up after uh, ending a daddy-little-girl relationship, wherein her sex life was focused a lot around age play. Now, I have to admit, I've really enjoyed listening to your show since I first discovered it nearly a year ago while cruising around Seattle with some of my old friends late at night, but I was really surprised by your reaction to the caller's use of a sippy cup as a part of her age play. So I thought I could help clarify why we use such objects like that in our play. And yes, I'm a 24-year-old daddy little boy switch with my girlfriend, and I'm kind of an advocate of accurate and responsible portrayal of age play in the media. It's not that the sippy cup itself is a sexual object. The sexual object is usually the diaper that we're wearing because we don't get off by drinking out of a sippy cup. Usually it just helps us get into a submissive headspace. 
for instance, drinking from a sippy cup or bottle, which is my preference, is the reflection of our assumed role, and it makes us feel submissive because it's a reminder that mommy or daddy doesn't think that I'm ready for a big boy cup yet. And in this dynamic, the mommy or daddy is the dominant and I'm the slave. You know, a cute and cuddly slave who has to ask to use the bathroom or be told that it's nap time, but it's pretty much like any other power exchange relationship wherein the sub gives up certain privileges to please his or her master. Age play is basically a cute and cuddly form of BDSM, and frankly, it's the most erotic sex play I've ever been involved in. And I understand that you know, your concern as a parent is a natural defense mechanism, especially since these objects represent a very innocent and non-sexual aspect of your own life. And I know that you know that age play has nothing to do with real children because you've touched on that point before, but it is worth mentioning again. Many of us who are diaper fetishists have been living with a deep-rooted fear of being ostracized from society under the false assumption that we're all pedophiles. So I just wanted to be clear on that. Thanks for all that you do and continuing to answer age play and diaper fetish-related questions with such equanimity and an open mind. Really appreciate it. And now it's time for me to move the fuck on. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. Uh, give us a call and record a question or a comment for a future show. 206-201-2720. Watch for my upcoming sex advice television program on MTV, if only to piss off Maggie Gallagher. You're going to want to be watching. 206-201-2720. That's the number. Me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading, Maggie.